welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Do you guys hear that? Do you listen closely? Do you hear it? No. If you listen closely enough, you can hear the cries of Toronto Maple Leafs fans from here. <laughs> All right, that was good. That was a better one. <laughs> I can hear it, and I heard it this morning, too, when I woke up. <laughs> I have a theory that the uh, the high stick last night in the Vegas game was called a good goal because the war room was just in tears. and like, yeah, whatever. Just count it. Who cares? It's fine. They, just, they left the interns. What does it matter? Oh, playoff goals? Why would What would we know? Count it. Who cares? No high stick. It's a good goal. I bet last night was the soundest sleep Evans ever had. <laughs> Um, I have a feeling that Evan never sleeps like terribly. Like he leaf, always sleeps soundly. Leaf fans crying in misery is his Amazon rainforest soothing mm. music to go Their to sleep. Their tears helped as well with the Amazon rainforest. Pure white noise. Oh yeah, it's the uh, the same people who were uh, bragging about taking Babcock from Detroit are calling for his oh, head. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, the stuff man. into my veins, ladies and gentlemen. You know when you see a dog like wrapped up in the blankets and you're like, I wish I was that person? That was how I slept last <laughs> night. <laughs> With the biggest shit-eating grin you've ever seen. I just went to the Twitter search function and put in fire Babcock and was entertained for a solid 10 minutes straight. And that was... 30 seconds after the game ended. <laughs> there, it was literally like three minutes. We're, we're going to talk about that, though, because there's legitimate gripes from Leaf fans. We're not we're not making fun of Leaf fans for it's, that. It's, it's it's quite fun how you can relate to it, but now it's like it's like your ex-girlfriend who you don't like or didn't like, and now she's with someone else and doing the same thing. You're like, bunch of suckers. <laughs> it is the purest form of hockey catharsis there is. Red Wings oh, yeah. fans have just been treated to like goodie bag after like gift basket after like here's like a present from the universe of just catharsis. Like the the pure joy of Eisenman coming back and then watching <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I, I was kind of pulling for the Leafs over Boston. I was kind of tired of Boston doing well. If you had to pick one, but I was like, I don't care who wins really. But like the pure joy of watching the same people who were screeching at us at Red Wings fans about stealing Babcock and then ha- watching them screech into the sky. It's been a good week for <laughs> us. Been, yeah. I mean, I just ate an entire pizza and some chicken nuggets and french fries it's before we recorded this. I'm happy. Objectively better <laughs> week for you than for the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> to be yeah. fair, I've known for like two months. You didn't have to flex that on us, so. <laughs> Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Hold on. Had to increase my kids per 60. <laughs> You did have to increase your kids' proficiency. And what Brad's talking about is uh, his bio on the newly launched wingedwheelpodcast.com. So it's been in the works for some time. We launched it today. Um, super excited about it. The uh, Check it all out. It's not like you're, you're not going to have to trawl through like thousands and thousands of pages. It's just a few simple pages about the show. Um, what Brad is referencing was the uh, bio page. Uh, I tried to get these guys... <laughs> To write their bios and submit their pictures for weeks. And you never once asked me to write a bio. And then they, I asked them for pictures yesterday, which was like the last straw. And Brad sent me the picture of the dog with like the human face looking confused. <laughs> and uh, Evan followed up with a picture of a cat licking itself. Yeah, and that's, that's Fred. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, 
I said screw it, and I, I picked their pictures and I, I wrote their bios for them, and so. And it worked out a lot better than I could have ever written anyway, so. Yeah, yeah it was a small excerpt from Brad. Um, uh, almost always annoyingly happy, he has the remarkable ability to spiral into uh, incredibly coherent fits of misery and despair. He also boasts the highest kids per 60 on the podcast. Everything's factual there. Uh, Ryan, or from mine, is uh, Ryan can often be found rubbing his temples and muttering, uh, I'm going to have to edit that one out. <laughs> And aside from being the chairman of the Bring Eisenman Home Committee, Ryan is digging into hockey analytics for purely for the reason of being able to use a analytics pun. <laughs> uh, Evans is truly the, was truly the easiest to write because it was all it all just kind of came from the soul. I'm a legend. You don't need to come up with anything. Uh, Evan is a talented golfer and a Clash of Clans connoisseur. Uh, he majored in mathematics and it does not apply it to hockey analytics in the slightest. All and that's that, only part of our bios. There's more. Part, yeah. All There's that more. Is fact. Uh, Wingvillepodcast.com. On that website, guys, you can find uh, quick links to listen to the most recent episodes. We have listen now buttons everywhere, and that'll just take you. It'll automatically launch uh, either uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, depending on the device you're on, or iTunes or, or what have you, depending on like the laptop or computer that you're on. And it'll also give you all the links and redirects to um, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, our RSS feed, YouTube, everything else. It has uh, our Twitter feeds. Buttons to follow us, um, how to support the show, whether through Patreon or Teespring, um, giving us ratings on iTunes, Facebook. Is this uh, the start or the end of the episode? Yeah, it's the start because we want to oh. do this in the beginning. Uh, it gives you a coming soon list, so like one to expect the next episodes, uh, and a full list of episodes that we've done. So you can go back and you can actually listen to the ep- episodes in line, like in the app or on the website. Uh, contact us page, the whole thing. We just, we did it. Uh, Jessica Odie, the same uh, talented um, individual who did our logo, did this website, and she absolutely knocked it out of the park. Uh, so, wingedwheelpodcast.com. Go check that out. Let us know what you guys think. Um, we're super pumped to launch this. And, uh, yeah. Brad, what, you were taking uh, pictures of me? Or? He was doing a dad thing. We're um, Instagram content. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Do you so, consent to that? I, you know, I haven't consented to a lot. It time. doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> it's, <posted. laughs> it's on the internet forever. It's just on our story. It'll go away in 24 hours. Yeah. And also everybody can now see your pores. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So this is going to be an interesting episode. Uh, we are going to talk first about the playoffs. And then uh, what you're going to hear is a Red Wings roundtable. So in the waiting in the wings are Max Boltman of the Athletic Detroit and Prashant Iyer um, from Winging at Motown and everywhere on uh, within the Red Wings world. Um, we're going to do a little Red Wings roundtable. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, so after the Eisenman news came out, um, you know, I was talking to Max, talking to Prashant, and Prashant was like, I'm happy our uh, episode got delayed. Like, I'm like, let's do a roundtable. Like, there's so much to hammer out. And so this is something that we've been excited to do. Uh, yeah. So that'll be coming next. So let's talk about things that aren't the Red Wings. Boy, were the playoffs last night fun. That's one word to use. Yeah. Depends who you are. Unless you're a Golden Knights fan. And we'll get to that because I think that's actually the meteor story here. Yeah. Stupid Toronto ruining everything. Toronto versus Boston Game 7 was the most predictable Toronto versus Boston Game 7 ever. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Not even a little. There was no third period lead blown that game. (laughs) You know there what? Was lead, there though. was a 4-1 lead. There was a 4-1 lead. There was a 4-1 third period lead. And then Boston had mercy and made it 5-1. I'm still angry about that because yeah. I already had sent out my 4-1 tweet. Yeah, I had to go delete mine. The 
I left it. Chaos reigns. The Toronto Maple Leafs came out and did their usual thing that they did in most of their games this series, which was play a period and a half of hockey and then just looked absolutely lost. And in moments where they didn't look absolutely lost, they made a catastrophic mistake, costing a goal. They're really, I, they do that a lot, right? Like a Gardner mistake or an Anderson mistake. Is They're never small. They're always just monumental mistakes leading to a goal. So the only goal Boston scored that Anderson realistically didn't have much of a chance to save was the one after the catastro- catastrophic Jake Gardner turnover behind the net. Mm-hmm. It's it was it was fitting. All three of those goals were very easily preventable by a a proper pass. Wait, are or you talking about the Corrali goal? No, I'm because ta- his was savable. Yeah, his was savable. I'm Whichever, talking about the Nordstrom. Was his the one that just squeaked in? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm talking about the Johansson goal. Yes, because that was a good shot right off the post and in off a bad turnover where Anderson probably didn't even have enough time to properly get set. And it was through traffic. Yeah, it was that one's not on Anderson. That was on Gardner for passing it directly to Marcus Johansson. So. There's no point in breaking that game down. Boston was the better team. Toronto did not play to their talent. Here's the thing. There are hordes of Maple Leafs fans, you know, from the casual fan to analysts calling for Babcock's head. And here's the other thing. They're kind of justified. He's 0-3. Babcock was rolling out Patrick Marlowe and Connor Brown in empty net or late game trailing situations all series and especially in game seven patrick marlowe who mustered like eight shots the entire series or something stupid like that one power play point since february nine 14 minutes last night nine goals all year i was chatting with a, a leaf uh fan friend today we went for a walk i felt like he needed it <laughs> um and he was like so basically babcock is rolling this guy out there at the end of the games hoping that he produces 25% of his annual production in the exact moment they need him to. He has an over-reliance on veterans? How could we have known this? How do you limit Austin Matthews to like 18 and a half minutes in a game seven where you're he trailing? He needs to be on the, the ice through? every other shift. And at the end of the game, he needs to be scraped off the ice. Five minutes in the third period. That's, uh, un- that's fireable. That's that's pretty... Like, that's, that's bad. So... This is the third period. You're going into the third period. Your season is on the line. It is literally game seven. Any other game of the year for Toronto, they were not on the verge of being eliminated from anything. So I could understand the argument of, we can't overplay these guys. We can't gas them now. We need them for the long haul. The third period, though, of a game seven in which you're trailing by two, when Matthew's line goes on the ice... Marner's line gets ready to go on. When Marner's line goes on, Matthew's line comes off. When Matthew's line comes on, Marner's line. And just repeat until the end of the game. If these guys, like Evan said, literally have to be scraped from the ice, they're so exhausted, so be it. And Babcock in his press conference said they had nothing, uh, they they didn't play well, or they had nothing, no answers after Boston went up 3-1. But it's... If you look at the reason why they had no answers, it's because they were putting out their fourth line and their third line repeatedly. Or I should say he was just rolling his lines, one through four. He didn't shorten the bench at all. And Matthews yeah, that's why a- you don't have answers, because you don't send your best players out to be the best players. He was on a five-game goal streak in the playoffs. That's an answer. Yeah, he was on a heater. Never leave the table on a heater. You never leave the table on a heater. Babcock left the table on a heater. Bab. 
look, the uh, there I, I heard some notions of like, you know, this was Dubis's first year. Maybe he talks to Babcock and says, "Here's what ne- what needs to change." If Here's Babcock did didn't wrong. openly insult uh, Kyle Dubis's moves and and things he's done with the team, then yeah, maybe they might just have a sit down conversation. But well, what uh, th- there's a definite more stern conversation after this because a coach has to perform just the same way as players do. Look, the the I don't think that like Babcock's not changing. He hasn't changed. He won't change. He's a great coach. It is it is my genuine belief that he's not the right coach for this team. I think he's the kind of coach who steps into a team that just hasn't found their way, but they're already there. You know he, what? He steps in with a with a team that's already developed, who just has hit some road bumps, and he takes them there. Okay, it's probably worth asking the question: Is he as good a coach as everybody thinks? Because you look at his past successes, the O three Ducks notwithstanding, because that was J.S. Jaguar. He won those gold medals with Team Canada. All-star teams. That doesn't count. Yeah, the team where his fourth line is better than every other country's first line in most instances. The 08 Detroit Red Wings and the 09 Detroit Red Wings where he won the Cup and went to the Cup Finals. All-star teams. Your Their third and fourth lines were better than most teams' first and second lines. So his over-reliance on rolling four lines was not an issue because all those teams had insane depth so it didn't matter Johan Franzen was a third liner God knows um, the fourth line was still clicking and then Team Canada like I said the fourth line probably featured several Art Ross winners but and you look at those teams further he does have a reliance of overplaying the veterans Team Canada and the OA Red Wings are, were never young teams there weren't young players to be paraded out who was the young guy that's who on yeah, on and he the played him with Brett Hall, so <laughs> and he was what twenty nine at the time, twenty eight, something like that. Datsuk, no, in oh oh eight oh oh eight. I'm thinking oh two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Dats- sorry. Datsuk might have been the young guy. Yeah, Datsuk, Franzen, who were both on the other side of twenty five. Cronwall was younger, wasn't he? No, he was drafted oh, in two thousand, yeah, so he would have yeah. been over twenty five. So again, he's when he's had these all star teams that are up there in age, he does well because nobody. Nobody, how much you hate, no matter how much you hate Babcock, can argue with his systems that he implements. They work. But his personnel management, ever since Detroit stopped being the powerhouse that they were, has been insane. And getting back to Evan's point, Toronto is a team on paper. We are a team. That should be a cup contender every year. They they were a team that should have had real... That should have had realistic expectations of winning the Stanley Cup. So this I guess year. what your what the the real question is: When has Mike Babcock taken a take drawn blood from a stone? When has he made a team better than they should be? Such as let's talk about the Islanders this year. Barry Trotz made them arguably a much better team. So the argument would be the 03 Anaheim Ducks that surprisingly went to the Cup Finals. But again, that's also the year where J.S. Jaguar won the Conn Smythe despite his team not winning the Cup. That was before Cup. YouTube, I don't think. That was also exists. 16 years ago. And that was... And even if you say, like, okay, take Babcock's success from 09, the last 10 years, hockey has changed a lot. Yeah. yeah. Detroit and Detroit, 05-06, one of the greatest regular season teams in NHL history, bounced in the first round. How many times did Detroit get bounced in the first round outside of those two years? First or second round, sorry. Often enough that there was concern. 
The the thing with Babcock is he's not willing to come off these points. In the post-game presser, they asked him about Marlowe, and he said we felt he was the right guy to have out there. By the way, shame on those reporters for not following that up with why. Yeah, I think Steve Simmons was the only one to ask about the Marlowe. Steve Simmons, our only savior. Oh, God. <laughs> this is the darkest timeline for Leaf fans, And then he us. was talking about, like, oh, well, we're going to get more big guys up front next Yikes. year. Like, did he actually that? say yeah. that? Oh, like, what does that no. mean? Hey, we've got a couple big guys they can have. Yeah. looking good. Mike, do you actually think your lack of big players to... Do you think that's the problem? Do you think the fact that you don't have... I, I, it blows my mind. Do you know who's over six feet tall? Austin Matthews. Look, uh, Kyle Dubas is a firm believer in in like being contemporary and progressive and modern and and keeping with keeping on the cutting edge. And whether that's hockey analytics or whether that's new talent evaluation models or methods or scouting systems, he's going to want to stay on the cutting edge. Mike Babcock is an old is is part of like the old school way of thinking as much as you'll ever find and he does not budge. And Kyle Dubas didn't bring Mike Babcock in no. as his head coach. Kyle Dubas has done presentations at conferences about the statistical and, and quantifiable difference in performance that you see from a team when you have a coach that buys into the same analytic system that the GM is employing. This guy <laughs> wants Sheldon Keefe as his head coach. And in my mind, it's only a matter of time. I think if I had to put money down, I think Babcock gets another year. And I, that's only because Shanahan has the year of patience for him. Yeah, he gets another year. And if he gets out of the first round next year, he buys himself another year. That's I, basically the way it works. Until inevitably... I think if he, he doesn't make this, the cup finals, he's gone. You're not going to fire a coach if you go to the conference finals. When was the last time that happened? And that, and that being Toronto's said, wacky, man. That's true, and Toronto's the team that could get to the conference final on skill alone. Now, again, this playoff format really screwed the Leafs. It's it's hilarious they were playing Boston in the first round. But still, you're at the point it's now. A, with it's it's, it's a league of parity. You've lost three straight years in Game Egg. 7 to the same team. Uh, you, they, you, are supposed to, you are trending upward. I wouldn't say Boston is trending upward as hard as Toronto is. They are not. So what, what what's going to happen that's different? And they are in a world of hurt for cap space. So where are they going to make any sort of changes? Jake Gardner in his game seven career minus nine will be jettisoned. Oh, yeah. Ron Hainsey will be jettisoned despite, I'm sure, Babcock kicking and screaming to, ki- to keep him. Nassim Kadri might be gone. There will be a ton of teams lining up for Kadri and his salary. And I know Wings fans don't want to hear it, but Steve Eisenman should be near the front of that line. Uh, low cap hit, really effective player. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's got the attitude problems, but I don't. I'm not a big believer in trading a guy because of attitude problems. Yeah, mind you, Detroit doesn't have any assets. Toronto's going to want for him because they would just be sending another forward back, which at that point is. The yeah. lateral move. But hey, you should try. Hey, we've got a Luke Lendenning. And a Danny DeKaiser. We solved two problems there for you, Toronto. Uh, I want to move on to the other series. So last night, with about 11 minutes left to play, the Vegas Golden Knights were up 3 nothing over the San Jose Sharks in Game 7. There was a, a playoff of face-off where it, actually, it was kind of a nothing. Like, it was all just kind of a blur. The camera wasn't really focused. Joe Pavelski ended up on the ice off of face-off, bleeding from the head motion. And, yeah, out cold. Super scary. And next thing you know, um, uh, Cody Eakin was being tossed out of the game. Five-minute major and a game misconduct. And I was like, what did Eakin do? And, of course, NBCSN didn't 
replays what are those? for like two minutes and then no they went to commercial break before she, they showed a replay and the replay came back and what happened was cody Eakin cross-checked pavelski off the face off like run-of-the-mill cross-check and as pavelski was being launched backwards he collided with paul stastny who was coming in and stastny kind of instinctively like pushed pavelski down so pavelski has now been like he, he has had no opportunity to try and save his fall and just landed it was right a on his massive head. series of unfortunate events <laughs> uh it was not a five minute ma- it was a freak accident and if anything you can call a minor cross check on Eakin and maybe even something on stastny for how he reacted although i d- would wager that it wasn't intentional but it was not a major everything looks way different in slow motion if you yeah. see that at full speed i i didn't see anything that you wouldn't label as is playoff hockey and it it wasn't anything malicious and it you know minor penalty is the most i saw on it i think the the ending of it is what got the five minute major i don't even know if the refs even saw it i only at the moment of the incident i only could see one ref on camera and his hand wasn't up Mm. yeah the refs didn't make a single motion until after. Until the they saw the result. It's they called. Situ- yeah. the, the, it puts the refs in the worst spot because either side is going to bitch about the outcome of what the refs decide on it. Yeah. And, and they made the wrong call, in my opinion. They called the outcome, not the play. Now, it was an objectively wrong call in my mind. I'm comfortable saying that. Like, there was the, there was the USA hockey a rule book being printed around, which is doesn't apply to the NHL. The NHL rule book, by the NHL rule book and by every precedent, it was the wrong call. Still, Vegas then proceeded to let in four goals on the yeah. ensuing five minute penalty kill. Yeah, you know, you can complain about the penalty all you want, but you still gave up four goals. You cannot give up four goals after the game. And when I woke up this morning, the entire argument on online was one side going, the ref screwed Vegas. They got totally jobbed. And the other one going, no, the rest didn't screw Vegas. Vegas collapsed. Both. Much, uh, it's yeah. a nice blend of both. <laughs> yeah. Much like, um, the whole blast Hill is bad versus the Red Wings are bad argument. Both can be true at the same time. Shut up, Brad. You have to pick a side. <laughs> The the Vegas Golden Knights completely and utterly collapsed. You can have a five-minute penalty kill, even if you only allowed two, which would be bad, below league average percentage, you're still winning. They allowed four. But also, the refs completely screwed them by giving San Jose a continuous five-minute power play late in the third period of a game seven. They did come back. They did tie it with 47 seconds left, and I thought for a minute karma might exist, and then, of course. That was the Carlson Bowl. Yeah. There was a lot of Carlsons in that series. So Vegas had a high-sticking so goal. So many Carlsons. Vegas had a goal that was knocked in with the high stick that shouldn't be counted. San Jose had the major uh, five-minute power play, which they shouldn't have had. Vegas led in five or four goals in four minutes, which, like, yes, that wouldn't have happened if the major wasn't called, but like Brad said, both both sides of the coin. Kill a penalty. Here. Yeah. It was just pure mayhem. I'm not gonna lie. I I was entertained. I'm glad it's not us. I'm oh glad yeah. Neither of those teams are us. Yeah. If that if if you replaced the Golden Knights with the Red Wings this morning, I my I'd be in the hospital. My blood pressure would be if so Pavelski high. If wasn't like in medical dire straits, I bet Joe Thornton would have w- walked back out there with his pants off after the game and gave the crowd a a nice show. <laughs> Ve- but, yeah. Vegas yeah. doesn't 
Vegas didn't really have a call or a game or like that moment in their team's history, their long illustrious history. They now have the moment that fans are going to look back on and say, if that didn't happen, we could have gone to the cup finals. Congratulations, Vegas. You're now hockey fans. Yeah. Welcome to the NHL. But um, I want to branch this off to a bigger point though. um, Since refing was such a hot topic before we get back to that game and talk about how it actually ended. I'm sick of this different set of standards in the playoffs garbage. It's bad. It's this every playoffs it's bad. This year seems to be worse. Johnny Goudreau against Colorado was rendered almost useless because of everything that wasn't called against him. You look at there was a play in overtime between San Jose and Vegas last night where Flurry came out to play a puck, made the save, knocked the puck into the corner. Timo Meyer just absolutely trucks him. There's no Golden Knight anywhere near Meyer, and it's not called. Like, that's a penalty in the regular season that's called a hundred out of a hundred times. Everybody was so over the moon with happiness about how much scoring was up and how the little entertaining players like Braden Point and Johnny Goudreau and Mitch Marner were succeeding. Which, by the way, is not a coincidence that Mitch Marner, Johnny Goudreau, and Braden Point had down playoff series. Um, This... You want to keep scoring up and you want exciting hockey. Call it exactly as the regular season is called. Tampa is a perfect example of a team that was built on skill and speed because 82 games of the regular season, that's how it's called. And they were the one of the best teams of all time under those rules. And then the rules changed in the playoffs and they got swept. Now, that's not <laughs> that's not entirely because of the rules, but it's a contributor. The- but it's just it's. So beyond frustrating because again, now you get teams who are built more le- or who are built less skilled, but more of this grit and toughness and yeah, and I they're getting say an unfair advantage. Vegas now. is a gritty I'm just, team, though. No, I'm not. Using and it them was as going a specific both game. ways. I'm saying the playoffs as a whole. the The notion of let them play, Boston, being, Toronto being the perfect example of that. The notion of let them play being not calling penalties is antithetical to letting them play because all that's going to it's going to bring back clutch and grab and slash and interference and just like you know Chara sucker punching people or leaving his feet for hits for talking different set of rules the different set of rules for six foot 100 Zidane Chara kills me every time I watch it but I digress it's not letting them play is not not calling penalties Putting your whistles away is garbage it's garbage that's for hockey. not letting them play yeah. it's ass backwards it's ass backwards it's you want to? You know who I want to see play in the playoffs? Mitch Marner. Yeah. I want to see him grab the puck, do three laps around the offensive zone, and then make a crazy behind the back pass to John Tavares on the doorstep for a goal. Do you know what I don't want to see in the playoffs? I don't want to see Tom Wilson almost kill three people and then bang in a rebound. Call me a crazy hockey fan, but I'm much more entertained by the skill players. Tom Wilson has been very well behaved this playoffs. He's actually been fantastic. I'm just yeah. he was the easiest example. Um, the last thing about that game. Uh, I actually fired off a quick tweet tweet talking about what we were talking about and I put my phone down. No one on Red Wings Twitter was up. So there like I wasn't there wasn't a lot of engagement and that like that's fine. I was just up to watch hockey and I just fired off a quick t- quick tweet that said, Oh, you know, that was the wrong call and San Jose proceeds to score four times. The rest are gonna want that one back. You never want a call that's gonna influence not only a game but a series. Uh, I looked at my phone a few minutes later and I had angered the entire section of San Jose Sharks Twitter <laughs> and the replies I was getting 
first of all, don't uh, don't pick a fight with a time zone that's going to be up three hours later than you because they will win purely by yeah, attrition. Uh, yeah, yeah, they uh, outlasted me there. I was an Islanders uh, savior and godsend last night after my tweet. Oh John yeah! Tavares. Oh my god, that was quiet. The uh, the only people who were liking it were Islander fans. Since when were you funny? I've always been funny. <sighs> it's I saw those tweets. <clears throat> I'm like, someone hacked into Evan's accounts. And yeah, you forget being funny. Since when do you tweet? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why I don't. I let I leave it. I leave something for the rest of you guys. So um, the, uh, the one update. Speaking of uh, other playoff series, yeah, Carolina just tied it in the third period. Whoa, they yeah, maybe our roundtable is getting Did, delayed. Ovechkin had an absolute unreal uh, assist. assist to we, Tom Wilson. We yeah. um, the replies I was getting were, "Are you crazy?" Like. How would you know what the rules of hockey are? I was like, I'm a, I was a referee. It's and there's this the thing called Google. You can yeah. look it up immediately. And they're like, you're just a salty fan. Like you're just pissed. We came back, and I was like, I'm not a Knights fan. And they're like, you're just angry. You're a sore loser. Sorry, you had to cheat with your high stick goal. I was like, I, I repeat, I'm not a Knights fan. And then after the game, someone tweeted at me and said, "See y'all next year, Ryan." I was like. Again, not a Knights fan. Congrats on the win, though. You literally have, like, Red Wings stuff all over your profile. Yeah, you know what? It was a corner of Twitter where I was like, is this what people – oh, this is what people are t- – I guess I've just never angered anyone before. No, because generally when we're angry as Red Wings fans, other Red Wings fans are angry, except for last night when I said that Dylan McRoth should be suspended for that headshot and Tyler Wong. Oh, boy, do a lot of people enjoy concussions. I mean – Well, he had the puck and his head was down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what you think that means. So uh, some people made the argument to me, are we sure? Because the video wasn't great. They're like, are we sure the primary point of contact was the head? Which is a fair argument. Like we didn't. Oh, there, for sure. That's a totally fair argument. So if your arguments, yeah, it looked like he might have got him in shoulder first before he got him in the head. I'll, I'll totally listen to that argument all day, every day. And I'm not trying to pick on one person in particular because I actually had three different people use this example. And I just have to get this out there because this one drives me nuts. So the argument for why McElrath's hit was clean, forget suspension, people were saying it was clean, was, well, Tyler Wong was coming through the neutral zone with his head down. What does he expect that's supposed to happen? And uh, what is McElrath supposed to do? Not hit him? Yes, that's exactly what McElrath is supposed to do. If Tyler Wong doesn't see him coming, you can strip him of the puck pretty damn easily without putting your shoulder into his face. This is, can we remind everybody, as angry and as seriously and as riled up as we get, this is a sport. This is a game. Nothing about the game of hockey matters other than our simple enjoyment. If your choice is, to knock Tyler Wong into another dimension, possibly giving him CTE and a lifelong of depression and other disorders, or letting him skate past you and forcing your goalie to make it safe, let him skate past you because, Jesus, it's a game. We'll be talking about ty- these types of hits <clears throat> for the foreseeable future in hockey. It's yeah. not something that's going away. Now, I'm using the extreme there, too. Dylan McGrath could have made a few different plays there. He could have just kind of stood him up and not leaned into the hit. He could have just lifted his stick and took the puck. He could have even just poked the puck away. Not like McGrath had no options to the point where he was either concuss Wong or give him a breakaway. Those were not the options McGrath. I'm sure had his, there. his goal was not to hurt another player, but eh, uh, McGrath has a history. <laughs> well, <laughs> 
still like it's but yeah so again i'll hear a lot of things happen i'll hear a lot of arguments for why what McElrath did last night wasn't a suspension or why yada 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 there's a lot of arguments both ways but what's he supposed to do not hit him is is the dumbest argument just please stop using that one can I talk about something that came up on Twitter and it just popped up again and I've looked at it like 10 times today and it's just making me so happy. Is it that picture of the dog again? No, but yes. Uh, no, it was it was Darren Drager absolutely bodying Mark Spector on Twitter. What ha- I missed this. What happened? Oh, this is so good. So I'll, I'll read like the, the, the string of tweets. Drager tweeted out something about Oilers will respect the appropriate time to allow Kelly McCrimmon um, and the Vegas Knights to sort through the end of season procedure. However, the request for permission uh, to interview McCrimmon for Oilers GM will happen in the near future. Just an innocuous tweet from Drager. Jim, oh, I said Spectre. It was Matheson. Oh, oh this yeah, is yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. I was wondering why everybody was tweeting, laughing at Matheson today, but I and didn't hear why. Matheson for no reason, like had nothing to do with him. Yeah. Other than it being Oilers, man. Have you has. have you read through his tweets? Yeah, it's a trip, man. He he quote tweets and says, "With due respect to you, Dregs, a hell of a reporter. That's not news. Didn't expect Nicholson to be phoning George McPhee at midnight after the loss to San Jose and asking for permission to talk to McCrimmon. Obviously, you have to let the dust settle. Which, like, why? Are you, why? Yeah, it's why? Like a that's, useless that's, tweet. That's it what Drager enough. said. You literally just said that's what <laughs> Drager goes quote tweets that and says, "Thanks, Maddie." And with due respect, I wasn't presenting it as news. A lot of what we do over the course of the day is merely, pu- is merely update storylines. And this is the. P- However, I look forward to reading the next time you break news. Yowch. <laughs> oh, get the body bag. <laughs> look, that man has a family. Drager's like, Drager's fine. Like, Drager's great. He does his thing, but he's by no means like a hockey information powerhouse like he i don't he's not on the level of friedman or mckenzie and that's fine but for matheson to be coming at him with that like it is if you ever want to have the most read through the most bizarre mind in hockey which see go through oilers twitter and go through uh, matheson stuff like i don't know his twitter handle but you'll find him it's not i travis yost retweets him all the time and just Take bite huge bites of like rock salt before you go through that Twitter because oh. nothing will make sense. Uh, it's the same guy where you see like uh, articles quoted like three months apart, like why Connor McDavid uh, or like why this person is the problem for uh, the Edmonton Oilers, and then three months later, why this person was incorrectly vilified for the Edmonton Oilers. No, yeah, except it'll be more hilariously. Um, like it'll be like th- th- Lucic takes. It'll be like January first. Why Connor McDavid is the savior of the Edmonton Oilers. March 1st. Why Connor McDavid needs to be traded right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is, it's all the time. <laughs> yeah, Drager actually. But Lucic especially. Oh, it's so good. The Lucic takes are bad but amazing. You know, as an outside observer, bad but amazing. I always just tend to think that when it comes to actual professional level, level of hockey knowledge, I'm just an idiot yelling into a microphone. And then I read tweets like that. And then I go, he gets paid to do this for a living. I've oh, got a chance. Yeah. Just because you get paid doesn't mean you get paid much. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, we're going to break to the uh, Red Wings roundtable with uh, Max Boltman and Prashanth Iyer. Uh, so that'll be um, an interview style uh, portion of the show, something we've been really excited to do. So hope you guys enjoy that. And we will have overtime uh, after we are done. So again, Max Boltman and Prashanth Iyer, everyone.
Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. This is our first ever uh, Red Wings Roundtable. We are joined by Prashant Iyer and Max Boltman. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ryan. Hey. Uh, of course, to my right, uh, making the fart noise that you guys didn't hear because I edited it out, was, is Brad Crisco, and uh, Evan is here in spirit. Uh, so this is something that we've uh, we've talked about doing and really kind of came about after the Iserman news. We were chatting, and there's just so much kind of going on and so many questions to be answered and so many exciting things to talk about. And we were all just kind of hopped up on adrenaline at 7 in the morning that uh, Prashant actually had the great uh, suggestion of doing a roundtable, so... Um, this is something we're pumped to do and, and uh, hopefully uh, it's something that goes well so we'll make a habit of it. Um, we're going to tie a lot of this back to uh, the prevalent topics that have happened with the Red Wings but uh, kind of just letting the conversation go where it will. Um, Brad has promised to inject Game of Thrones fan theories in so expect some railroading there. No, Max isn't caught up yet. I'll give him a break. Oh, Max, how far are you? Uh, they just... You know, can I... I can swear on here, right? Uh, they just yeah. got the end's dick off, so <laughs> approaching the red wedding. I actually think I've I've uh, gotten a few of the spoilers. Like I'm also like a really like anxious TV watcher, so I've just googled a few of the things that were stressing me out because it gave me <laughs> comfort to know how how they would play out. So I don't know if there's much you could spoil for me at this point. I'm really happy that you're not watching this season live because it is stressful as all. <laughs> um, no, like you know the show Barry. Like I'm literally not watching it's like my favorite show on tv and i'm not watching any of it because i can't handle the cliffhangers so i'm just waiting till it's over so i can binge the whole thing at once like i had season one that's so wholesome um <laughs> we're gonna be we'll start out with uh, a few um well obviously eisman related questions uh if you guys hear cheering in the background prashant is also keeping a silent eye on the uh, carolina washington overtime in game seven there so prashant do us a favor and keep us posted actually yeah, I got the game up on my second monitor. It's muted right now, so we'll, we'll give updates as it see as they come about. Beautiful. Um, so Friday, Good Friday's news. Good Friday turned into a great Friday. Uh, and for all of you angry Catholics out there, I grew up Catholic, so I get to make that joke. Um, good Friday turned into great Friday with the Eiserman news. Um, his, his joining of the Red Wings, and basically by 3 p.m., we heard their press conference that we've been waiting to hear in so many ways for so long. Um, and, and one of the questions that kind of came in was, how does Eisenman joining the Red Wings affect this rebuild plan and its timeline? So it, does this become more of a rebuild in earnest, or does it move away from that? And in which way does the timeline move, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think thus far, a lot of people have drawn parallels to how we kind of came into Tampa and really shook up uh, the organization really quickly. You remember he bought out Vinny LeCavier and he made a lot of very aggressive moves kind of in the first one to two years that really cemented the Lightning's ascension to the top of the East. And I think if for fans that are trying to maybe picture that happening in Detroit, I think the big thing to remember is the two teams are very are, are in very different positions. When Eiserman stepped into Tampa, he had Steven Stamkos, he had Victor Hedman already on that roster, and you don't have anybody at that caliber on this current team right now. And so I think Eiserman in the press conference is coming out and saying, we're going to be patient. I'm not going to make moves that just make us incrementally better. And if you want to know how this is going, ask me in five years. I think people should really take those words to heart. And I don't – I think you're going to see an earnest rebuild 
not necessarily anything super aggressive that maybe mimics what he did in Tampa. Yeah, I think I think that's true. What I think is interesting is, is kind of the idea that that is going to be a marked. I think there will be differences in the, in the styles of how Holland would have approached it and how Eiserman would have. But I'm looking at a quote right now from less than a month ago from Holland where he says, the reality is when you're rebuilding and building a franchise, it's about patience, it's about having a plan on how to get there. It's never fun. It's not fun. You look around the league and you can just look team by team how long it took for them to get there. It takes longer than you like. Dot, dot, dot. Some time passes. The reality is we got to continue along that path. I, I think that's very similar to what you heard out of Steve Eiserman in his introductory press conference. So I think the differences are going to be maybe the ways that they carry out that general central uh, theme of patience in, in the rebuild. I think that you know maybe there's going to be different approaches for, for how to achieve that uh, aim or how to make it pay off. But, but I think vision-wise, um, the, the, the message, the narrative around the Red Wings is, is pretty close to what it was a month ago still. The thing I'm curious about is with the trend of the league getting younger, how does, assuming Eisenman moves some of these bad contracts, Erickson Daly, whoever it might be, the Red Wings inject some youth, Zadina this year, Valeno in a, another year, and a couple other prospects in between. In a lot of ways, I think that's actually going to improve the team. So we might see, I'm not saying we're going to see a playoff, see a playoff team this year, but... Uh, Five to ten point jump in the standings, I think, is very possible this year, just with the addition by subtraction. So, do you think that would change the organization's mindset going into next summer? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly could. I think one area, like you brought up, Brad, with the uh, shift to a younger league. If you look at what Eiserman did in in Tampa, I think this is something that goes a little bit under the radar, but. He did an excellent job of getting his young players on long-term deals very early. Um, I think we've seen the philosophy in Detroit for years has been to slide the contract, slide the contract, bridge deal, bridge deal. And then the players are getting their longer-term contracts, if you will, at ages 28 through 32, probably ages we don't really want to be paying. But if you look at what he did, in Tampa, I mean, Stamkos got his contract when he's 25, Kucherov when he's 23, Tyler Johnson when he's 25, Yanni Gord got his uh, last season. So he's done a really good job, I think, of kind of shifting that narrative and making sure that he's prioritizing his younger guys, paying them appropriate amounts really during their prime and avoiding some of those contracts. So how that ultimately impacts Detroit is, I think, you'll see him want to take looks at those younger prospects sooner uh, as opposed to utilizing the ability to slide the entry-level contracts um, just so he knows what he's got. One thing that I think I- that's dead on, and it's, it's, a, it's also like a, a huge thing to think about. Like, like this year, it wasn't going to be super possible for Zadina because of expansion draft reasons, that, that same nine-game threshold that applies to the ELC slide, applies to expansion draft eligibility. That's not the case anymore next year. So when you look at somebody like Delano, uh, there might even be an incentive to get him to that 10-game mark so that you can get one year of, of that ELC ticked off. Because when you look around the league and you look at some of the guys who are negotiating after their ELC, like, like I know Valeno's not necessarily in this tier of player. Think about how much better a contract – Toronto could have gotten on Mitch Marner had they done it last offseason, that waiting for him to go be 
as explosive as he was this year. Like there might actually be a really good incentive to get through the ELC as quickly as possible before the player has the chance to get their like explosive year that is going to command a massively high annual salary. I think that's, that's a really good point by Prashant in terms of not sliding where I think conventional wisdom for a long time has been to, to slide as often as possible. Yeah. The, the draft lottery really, really has kind of, masked the benefit to to not sliding and I think seeing what Colorado's doing with Kale McCarr which they really didn't care about sliding or not like they, they want to, the guy to play in the playoffs and in the end they're going to get a cheaper player like you mentioned when they sign the contract so it's it's kind of interesting now that people are kind of looking beyond the expansion draft that that things are a little bit more cemented uh, that they have a better idea uh, of how that's going to go one last point about um, Eisenman coming in and how things have changed and I think this is uh, a point where I actually I don't want to say disagree, but I see a lot more difference than you might see, Max, is I did a lot of reading between the lines in that press conference, and they were very careful about how they framed the messaging around Holland. So at no point did Eisenman come out and say, you know, things are going to change. We're not going to do this, this, and this. That was mentioned. But he actually, he did, he did pointedly say, you know, it's going to take time. Um, we're not going to go out and make moves just to get a little bit better, et cetera, et cetera, things in that vein. Meanwhile, what we'd been hearing for, for the better part of 18 months was if we have a chance to make our team better, we have to take it. We want to be aggressive. We want to accelerate this. So I do think there's a, a drastic shift. And, and though there might be some philosophical um, overlap, I think the Venn diagram is a lot less, um, you, you know, the, the middle circle is a lot less uh, large than, than maybe we're, we're giving it credit for. Well, one thing I'll say about that is Holland did make a comment at that same locker cleanup press conference to say, like, when he was talking about free agents, he said a high, high, he, he, he emphasized a high, high impact guy. Um, I don't think that that is necessarily off the table uh, in, in this setting either in terms of getting a little bit better for next year. But I will also say what we now know, looking back on that locker cleanup press conference, is that Ken Holland knew Steve Eisenman was coming. And so it's a good chance that they had already had a chance to put their heads together and kind of think about what the, what the next direction was going to be. So possible. The reason you hear some similar messaging in those two press conferences, whereas like Ryan pointed out, maybe not consistently through the last 18 months, maybe Ken Holland had just already talked about what that vision was going to look like with, with, with Heiserman. That's a great, uh, actually feed into our next topic of the converse, topic of conversation, which is a, a debate as to what the wings should do in terms of free agency this summer. They're going to have a lot of, uh, of cap space, which is kind of newer for, for this uh, version of the team. Um, do we think that the Red Wings should go all out in unrestricted free agency and maximize uh, the usage of their space, especially with the LTI, like the, all the space that's freed up through LTIR? Um, that would be roughly $22 million in spending the summer, or is this more of a wait and see what you have kind of situation? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two clear schools of thought here and, you know, the school of thought one is maximize the benefit that you get from LTIR, you know, Henrik Zetterberg and Johan Franz and contracts are both going to be on there. That amounts to about 10 million in benefit on top of the roughly 12 million that, Detroit will have in cap space pending the other moves that they make. And so this is really a marquee free agent uh, group that's available. There's a lot of big names um, out there that could really turn around the team um, very, very quickly. And so I think the Wings do have a legitimate 
consideration to make here? Because if you were able to go out and get one or two of those big name guys, how does that really change your team? I think from my standpoint, at this point, I don't really want Detroit adding any sort of contract that's going to have high dollar and long term, given that we don't really know the state of this team. And I think flexibility with respect to the cap is probably the most important thing the Wings can maintain, particularly if they aren't able to get extensions done for Athanasiu and Manta early in the season and both those guys go out and drop 35 goals and maybe even hit 40, depending on the year. Um, there's going to be a lot of money that needs to be tied up in then, and all of a sudden you're looking at a cap crunch uh, real early on that might stall any plans you had. So, so as good as the free agent market is, I think it's better to get an assessment of what you've got and potentially use that cap space in a different manner that we'll talk about later, um, as opposed to going out and getting big name free agents. Yeah, I think I'm generally in agreement with that. There, but I do. I will say the one word of caution is, you know, the 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 idea that that you can make those moves when you're ready does sort of assume that the same caliber of players are always going to be on the market. Next year's freezing crop, I am pretty sure, is not going to be anywhere near as good. So it, it is kind of a question of how many years you're willing to wait. And, and there's certainly an argument that, you know, two years is not an unreasonable amount of time uh, to wait with, with, with what we know about the current Red Wings. But you're also looking at a time when Athanasiu is in his prime and Manta is in his prime and Bertuzzi is in his prime and Larkin is entering his prime. And, and I don't think there's any reason to try and rush it and get better for, for this year, certainly. And I don't think if, if, if the motivation behind any free agent moves is about the 2019-20 season, that that would be a short-sighted mistake, and I also don't think it'll happen. But I think there is an argument that in order to be as prepared as possible for when the team is good, you can make a free agent signing this summer that, yeah, maybe it, maybe it is tying up some money, and, yeah, maybe it is taking a little bit of a, a bet on how things are going to play out. But that move that is made this summer is specifically targeted for, let's say, the, the 2021 season, if, if there's a player you like on the market who, who you just don't think there's going to be a, a comparable caliber player available next summer. I mean, if you look at like an Artemi Panarin, unless you like Taylor Hall as much as Artemi Panarin, which I don't, um, then there's a really good argument there is no one as good as Artemi Panarin out there. Now, I don't think the Rebels are, are contenders for Artemi Panarin. Just philosophically, that's just kind of the argument that I, I would say is the only word of caution I would give because in 99% of instances, I think, uh, I think I'm in, in pretty much lockstep with the idea they shouldn't, they shouldn't go big for the summer. I tend to agree with that sentiment with one very specific exception because this is a superstar-driven league and if you do not have those superstars, very few teams have successes and uh, like Max was alluding to, they don't come available all that often. Detroit's picking sixth overall in this draft, so draft history suggests they're more likely than not to get a very good player but not an elite player at that pick. And next draft, if there's any improvement from this team this year, they're probably picking lower than six. So I look at a guy like Eric Carlson this summer, who, based on the first round of the series, despite playing with no groin and one ankle, still leads the playoffs and assists, so is still very much an elite-level player, despite not relying on his skating. He's the type of player, and he my, my two-sign list for this entire summer probably starts and ends with him. But if you can get a guy of that impact on a contract for five, six, seven years for, like Max said, the 2021-2022 season and have him there already in place, I 
can't see how you pass that up. I agree. My answer to this is, is pretty boring. It's, it's kind of the gray area in between because, uh, Prashant, I read your article about the off-season plan, and, and that resonated a lot. That's my inherent thought process, which is wait and see. We need to normalize. The, the team needs to establish its foundation before making yet another you know, potential mistake, like another Franz Nielsen and another Darren Helm contract. Um, and then hearing what, what Max has to say, it's a great point. The timing is never going to be perfect. You know, just because in my head, the perfectionism is the way to go. It doesn't, that just has no basis in reality. Most of the time we saw Pittsburgh win with a, a decor where their best player was an injured, uh, Chris Letang, or as much as I hate to be the person to parrot this, look at these playoffs that anyone can win mentality is there provided that you do have those few pieces to generate it. Now this isn't NBA basketball where you need a big three superstar to, to, to win anything, but still if you can lock down Eric Carlson, I would have a hard time hearing an argument saying Eric Carlson would make your team worse. But this is also a team that has, in my opinion, and this is a very subjective opinion, has not seen a general manager or an administration that makes the basic correct decisions to even establish that foundation, which is, I think, part of why there was such a chorus of, of cheers for Eisenman, truly. Uh, we'll jump into uh, the next question here, which is about the draft plan. We mentioned a little bit. Uh, Detroit, uh, in the draft lottery, fell to uh, six overall, uh, which was, the, in terms of uh, probabilities, the most likely outcome. Now, this is a completely wide-open draft. Jack Hughes, number one. Capocacco, number two. That's, that's almost 100% happening. But from three to ten, I've heard every which player. What's Detroit's draft strategy here in terms of who they go after, even in their positioning, do they trade up or trade down? Um, are they drafting best player available, or is there a specific guy in mind? What's your take on that? Yeah, I think their their draft strategy is uh, going to be an interesting one, um, simply because of the crop of players that's really in that three through fifteen range. Uh, I think it kind of extends all the way down to fifteen, um, and so at that point, you know, best player available is certainly what Detroit should be thinking about, given that the most important thing is for this team to just add talent. But at the same time, if the best player available is only marginally better than the next three or four players drafted, then that does leave you as a, in a prime opportunity to trade down. And so there are a handful of guys that if the wings were to trade down kind of into that 10 to 12 range, um, that would still be available and likely not all that worse than what they would be able to pick at six. And they may be able to add another first round pick given that they do have three second round picks that could be used in any sort of package that uh, surrounded them trading down to add another pick. And so I think bottom line, best player available should be at the forefront. If one of the major guys drops, like if you're sitting at six and Port Colson's there, um, or potentially Byram is still there. Those are probably a couple guys you want to take a long look at. But if not, you may want to consider trading back and seeing if you can sweet talk Buffalo, Anaheim, or another team into giving you another first-round pick um, to make another deal happen. Yeah, it's it's really tough that the teams with multiple firsts are picking so close to Detroit, because I agree that that with the kind of the clustering, there's certainly – a scenario where the draft plays out in a way that's going to put Detroit, um, you know, right, right at the start of a, of a tier that they think is, is all pretty close together. I, I just think, I, I wonder if, 
Anaheim and Buffalo, who already picked so close to Detroit, are going to be that motivated to try and, and jump up. Um, but it, it, I mean, certainly if that's on the table, I think you do it all day. If you, but I, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if either of those teams is, is going to be in love with one player in that tier enough to make that move. Especially meanwhile, when I think, you know, I, I'm kind of getting to the point where I wonder if Alex Turcotte even going to be on the board. I, I have long thought Bowen Byron will be off the board, and I think the worst case scenario is that Pod uh, Colson and Turcotte all go uh, three through five, and then what does Detroit do? Like, do they do they go for? For Kirby Doc, Alex Newhook, I think, has looked pretty good over overseas in this tournament. Uh, is he is, is he a guy that's gotten himself enough credibility after playing in the BCHL? Like like that's the kind of guy that I I think about in a trade down scenario where maybe you can sneak out of there with a guy like Newhook or, or maybe even Peyton Krebs, who who didn't maybe get all the attention but maybe still can flash some really interesting uh, some really interesting skill. But I think that's the worst case scenario is that one of those three guys that I just mentioned is not even on the board. Uh, and, and I think there's a real chance it happens. And that would be a tough spot for, for the Red Wings to be in because I think that those are kind of the players that, that, that I see as the, the most natural picks. So I, I fully understand where you guys are coming from with the trade down scenario. But like um, Prashant was mentioning, skill wise, 3 through 15, there's not a tremendous difference. So I, again, I agree. I don't think I see a team that's going to be so desperate to come up knowing they're going to get a good player. My personal rankings, I, I do see a top six or seven that's starting to separate themselves from the pack. So obviously my rankings are going to give myself a bias, but Detroit is in need of elite talent here. They don't need more depth per se because they've got a good amount of that. If they have enough faith in their scouting service or if their scouts are trumpeting one or two guys, they I think they have to just sit there and make the pick because... Again, they've got three seconds this year. They've got two seconds and two-thirds next year. And odds are one or two of those guys should pan out to be um, more decent depth players. If if Turcotte or Byram specifically does slip to six, I don't see how they can afford to pass on him, especially considering how big of a need um, center and defense is for this team right now. Uh, as much as I love Pod Colson, I'm almost hoping he doesn't fall past Chicago just so Detroit doesn't have to make that winger versus center versus defenseman debate in their own minds again because with how closely these players are ranked and how marginally, um, how how little difference there is between their skill set, this might be the rare draft where Detroit can be sitting there at six and literally pick the player they think um, they need most based on position and it and it wouldn't be that outside of best player available if it wasn't already best player available. All right, let's pretend Steve Eisenman, uh, one of his first acts as GM, is to hire this entire roundtable as the head of his scouting team, um, <laughs> which would be a travesty. Detroit already has a great scouting team in there, and we're sorry in advance. Um, if you had to pick, uh, without knowing the draft order beyond picks one and two, who would be, in order, your top three guys for Detroit to target? Oh, that's a tough question. I think probably for me... Um, you know, I think it's changed a little bit since I've written this article, but probably Turcotte, Byram, and Zegras at that point would be the three that I'm looking at uh, if Detroit's going to keep the pick at six. Yeah, I think I'm Turcotte, Byram, Doc, with basically the same idea, though. It's it's the two-way center, the, the, the top pair D, and then the, the elite playmaker, which I think both both Zegras and, uh, and Doc could lay claim to. Yeah, so if if the top three goes as we expect, I'm 
The boring answer is I, I tend to agree. I go Turkop, Byram, Zegris in that order right now. I, I I started off, and I'll probably flip-flop back to this, but I started off with Turcot and then Byram, but watching a lot of Byram's tape lately, I would, I'm going to bump him up to one, Just and this is completely against what I should be valuing, but based on Detroit's needs and assuming they don't get an Eric Carlson, I'll put Byram at one, Turcot at two, and then if it's not Pod Colson, then uh, Zegris' uh, play style or, or playmaking ability kind of screams to me. Um, J.D. Burke for elite prospects actually was uh, pretty low on, on, on Trevor Zegras, I noticed. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a varying kind of view of Zegras based on kind of proximity to Hughes, um, as well as like how much of the production is truly driven by him, like from a scoring perspective. So, like, I, I have seen a couple people who have tried to apply certain models to prospect drafting that have been a little bit lower on Zegris than most. Um, I don't know that I'm necessarily at the point where I'd say I wouldn't put him still in my top three guys to look at because I think the concerns are um, not well-founded. Yeah, I've seen him play live three times and was pretty impressed every time and then he obviously joined the u18 plate uh, you know i don't know if he's at full strength right now either I, I i think that the reason i put doc above him is because i think there, there's maybe a little more tools there but i would have no qualms at all uh if i was detroit with, with taking zegris either so a lot of the concerns that i have with zegris and doc actually line up with each other because they're both great playmakers but they both tend to slow the game down a little bit when they get the puck, whereas obviously the NHL is trending faster and faster. But to me, the this difference between Zegers and Doc is the creativity in Zegers' game. His, you watch some of the passes he makes and they just don't make sense. How he's seen the player there or predicted what was going to happen. He might just yeah. be getting lucky, but he's getting lucky a lot if that's happening. So I, I think... Him and Doc are pretty similar players, but from the the tapes I've watched, it just looks like Zegers's vision and uh, creativity are just a, a step above Doc's at this point. Now, last and last I've seen Doc live, so I, I also could be being fooled by you know in, in an abnormal concentration of highlight. Like cause when you're watching a lot of video on, on prospect, a lot of it's highlight, so it could I could be getting a little over. Uh, overconfident with what he can do because of just the number of plays of his that I've seen that are highlights. Now the last draft-related question. Um, the under-18 worlds are going on right now, uh, and Cole Caulfield is absolutely tearing up the field, uh, setting records for the U.S. NTDP. Uh, he has, what is it, 10 goals through four games or something ridiculous like that? Yeah. What does this do realistically to Cole Caulfield's draft stock come June? Uh, yeah, this is the million-dollar question, right? Because... You feel like this guy's going to be a stud. You feel like this is Alex to bring out 2.0 all over again. Um, and I still don't believe that GMs are going to take him in the top eight players in the draft. Like, part of me has the sinking feeling that this guy's going to slide to, you know, 12 to 15, which is part of the reason why, in my own head, I'm biased towards wanting to aggressively look to trade down um, if that guy is still available. Because, man, that guy. I, I mean, he can score, he can fly, and I have a feeling he's going to get overlooked again for size. Um, so I, I don't personally think he's moved himself up 
but Max would definitely have a lot more insight into real world GMs and not me sitting here. Well, no, I, I just think, I don't think anyone had any doubts over whether or not Caulfield could do what he's doing. Like, I, I don't think the U18 changed it because I, I sat and watched the kids score six goals in a game a month ago, and Chris Draper was there, Ken Holland was there. Like, I, I, a lot of GMs, I mean, have seen Cole Caulfield all year, and he does this all year long. Like, I, I think we're all seeing it, um, in, especially in, in the short succession of games here that are on national TV, and it's really easy because, because you see – the goals happen and, and they're not just like empty digits on a box score. And yeah, maybe the pace is a little accelerated now from, from kind of what it was, but, but I'm telling you, I watched the guy scored six goals in a game a month ago. I don't think, I don't think there's a GM out there who didn't know Cole Caulfield could do this. And if there is, uh, he might want to have a talk with the court. I mean, this is the joke Corey made on Twitter the other day. Like he might want to, might want to check in with what your scouts are doing. If they didn't know he could do this. Yeah, for me, the only debate, obviously taking the Red Wing angle at this with Cole Caulfield, is the Red Wings, uh, scoring wingers is the one position they're not exactly lacking depth at. Yeah. So even even though I would 100% be on board for trading back for Cole Caulfield, because I think you guys are right, skill-wise, he's he should be in consideration to be a top five, top six pick. But the fact that he's 5'6", roughly 90 pounds is not going to do him any favors. But, yeah, just the Red Wings' simple uh, depth at scoring winger leads me to believe that they wouldn't consider that, unfortunately, despite how good he is. What's, the, what's like, the, the threshold for what you guys would consider a worthwhile trade? Like, what's, like, the return for a worthwhile trade back, say, four or more picks? Because, in, in my opinion, I don't, I don't know if trading back for anything less than a first really makes much sense unless it's only like one pick like what's kind of your guys threshold in that in that regard i would agree that unless it's a first it's not really worth it to move back for four places uh i i actually so if we're going from let's just say six to ten i wouldn't do it for a pick outside of 22 honestly um just again based on my personal rankings once we get past uh turcot byram zegris pod colson uh, Hughes and Kako, obviously, I, I think that's where the drop-off in the draft happens. So the fact that Detroit's sitting in that window would make it near impossible for me if I were the GM to trade out of it. Yeah, I think it's a tough question. And I think from draft to draft, it's always going to be draft-specific. Um, you know, for this year in particular, I think this year is better suited to trading out of the top 10 and maybe last year where I think there was a larger drop-off after you got outside the top seven or eight guys than what you currently have now. For me, I, I think Detroit's uniquely positioned with their three second-round picks that I do think they could certainly sweeten the pot. And I think one thing that we've all talked about thus far is you know trading back for another first in this year's draft. But you know next year's draft does have a potential generational talent and if you decide to make a deal with uh, a potential lottery team for next year then you put yourself as likely having a second opportunity to get that first overall pick and so I don't think that should be discounted either so I'd be certainly happy with anything in the first round this year or making a deal with a potential lottery team next year to see if you could get their first like for example Vancouver has, I guess, had some rumblings that they're interested in moving up because um, the draft's in their hometown and they're 10th right now. They would be a great team that I'd say, hey, if you give me your 2021 first, 
um, and I'll give you a, maybe a second round pick this year, and I'll give you six, I'd be happy to do that deal too. I think, I think Brad made a great point though about you know the the thing they're missing not being the second pair and second line guys. That's once you get once you get back around ten, like you you're really risking that's you're getting another one of those. And I think six does give you the, I think, I don't, I don't I'm not going to say it's like exponentially better, but I would say markedly better chance of getting a first line or first pair of player than, than moving. I mean, first pair, like I think, I think everyone here would agree that if, if Byram's on the board, they're not moving back, but, but, uh, but if a first line forward potentially, I don't know if I, if I, I was them, I don't know if I'd want to give up that chance. I completely agree that, you know, targeting a, a team that's willing to be aggressive, maybe erroneously, like like Vancouver, or possibly a team that might come crashing down to reality, like the Islanders, although they've proved everyone wrong this year, um, would be a great strategy. But yeah, if there's ever a time to get a, a potential superstar that people didn't see coming at six, like, it's got to be this year with, with Alex Turcott missing so much time due to injury, but people comparing him to a more productive version of Larkin or uh, if Pod Colson falls and he's the real deal and he ends up coming over without a hitch, like that could be a huge get. So I, I think you guys nailed it on the head here where Detroit kind of has to see what's in front of them. Um, but if they do have that opportunity and you know they're sitting there choosing between maybe like a, a Doc or a Zegris, then I would be more inclined to say, yeah, absolutely, make that move. Double your chances, be next year's Colorado in the Lafreniere lottery. Uh, I'm going to move us away from the draft now, and I'm actually going to talk about uh, potential moves that Eiserman can make right now that aren't the typical uh, mega UFA signing. So something that uh, we've been chatting about is um, the idea of, of, of taking on bad contracts uh, in exchange for assets. So there's a couple teams in the Atlantic, even with, with Tampa Bay and Toronto, that are primed to have to give up big paydays and, and make some cap moves. And Detroit has both time and money. So where, what's your take on this and what are uh, Eisman's opportunities here? Yeah, I think this is um, kind of what I was alluding to earlier when talking about how to best utilize the cap space. I think Detroit's uniquely positioned to call up a contender, maybe a team that's pressed to the cap and suggest, hey, if you want me to take this bad contract so you can – sign who you need to sign, um, I'm more than happy to do that if you throw in a sweetener. And we've seen this kind of strategy work for a handful of teams over the last few years. Um, you know, the most notable example of this is Carolina taking on Brian Bickle's contract. And in exchange for doing that, Chicago threw in Tavo Teravainen, who dropped 78 points this year. So, and, you know, um, Arizona was able to do that with Again, with Chicago, so maybe just pick on Chicago is the moral of the story. Um, Chicago <laughs> throws in Vinny Henestroza in the Marion Hosa deal. You know, Arizona also got the opportunity to draft Jacob Chikorin in the Datsuk deal, although I think that's worked out nicely for Detroit as well. So bottom line is I think they can present themselves as a team that is willing to take on that dead space. Now, granted, they have to be very careful about this. You, want, you don't, don't want to take on dead term where you're doing this for multiple years, I think one or two years max for a contract would be an, uh, maybe an attractive way to go about it. And there are a handful of guys that present themselves. You know, Patrick Marlowe in Toronto, he's got a, he's got a no-move clause, so it's unlikely that he would have waived that. But if Detroit wanted to absorb his $6-plus million contract so that Toronto could take on and sign Marner and Gardner if they want to, then – 
Absolutely. That's a deal you make. And you see if Toronto throws in one of their top tier prospects um, or Tampa is the other team with Ryan Callahan, who's got a little over five million left for one year. But again, if Tampa wants to throw in a Matthew Joseph for you to take Ryan Callahan, then great. I'm happy to do that. And so I think that's another way Detroit can add young, skilled players into their system is by kind of weaponizing that cap space. It's a, it's a great way to preserve it in, in basically styrofoam to the cap space because it's getting used. You know, you're probably not going to get close enough to get any LTIR off of either of those um, in terms of getting to the threshold where it kicks in. But, but you, you preserve it because it's still going to be free space in, in a year. The only the only big trade-off I see with that is the sheer lineup space. And, and we've talked a lot all off-season already, as short as it's been, about it's not so much a log jam, but it, it's it, there are decisions that have to be made. There, these are decisions about Michael Rasmussen. There are decisions about Evgeny Svechnikov, potentially Taro Hirose, like who who fits where. And when you're putting another, you know, 35, 36, I mean, I don't even know how old Patrick Marlowe is, year old in the lineup, uh, That that's a spot that, you know, especially when you look at somebody like Svechnikov, all of a sudden he's waiting for someone else to get injured for him to really still get his first prolonged shot in Detroit. Um, that's something that may still be worth it, depending on what the asset you get back from, from a Tampa Bay or Toronto is. And certainly there's, there are plenty of returns that make, make that worth the risk. But, but I do think you have to be conscious of making sure that we've, we've talked about it at length, making sure you have space for the young players. Um, and I, I think I see that as the only big trade-off. I, uh, understand well, where you're coming from there, Max, and I agree. I, I personally, unless the return is going to be a top nine forward or a top four defenseman, I would not, um, or cat top four caliber prospect in return, I wouldn't take on that contract. But there's nothing that would really prevent Detroit from just eating the cap hit and burying the player in the minors, right? So if you took on a Ryan Callahan sure. from Tampa Bay, um, I know it's not Jeff Blashill or Detroit style traditionally, but Steve Eisenman is the breath of fresh air here, so he might just take him on and bury him. Eat the cap hit. You don't get the player out of it. He mentors some guys in Grand Rapids, and then, you know, Svechnikov or Hiroshi still getting some solid time on the third line this year, potentially. That's a great the, point. Yeah, if this was a, a Ken Holland team, I think I would have been a lot more concerned about, you know, bringing on a Ryan Callahan and then making him a top nine or a top six forward and then re-signing him to multiple extensions. <laughs> <laughs> We've been hurt before, but I, I think there's a lot more amenability to kind of uh, doing it this way now, especially with Iserman. Um, some of the onus does fall on the coach in the end, and that's actually a good transition because Jeff Blasha was just extended shortly before Iserman came on board for two years. Now, from what we know of the timeline, uh, Eiser, it, it's been pretty much a given that Eisman's going to come, and that was kind of confirmed at the press conference. And whether you're a subscriber to this all did happen in March and only starting March, or if you kind of feel that it was in the works well beforehand, kind of uh, behind the scenes, um, there are some prevailing questions here of how does this affect... Uh, Blashill's spot on the team. How does Eiserman's organizational philosophy mess w- mesh with how uh, Blashill runs a team, and what can we look forward to there? Yeah, I mean that's um, that's going to be the million dollar question, I think, for the Wings moving forward. I think you've seen a little bit of the what it looks like when there's dissension between the front office and the coaching staff with Toronto this past season, and I think you certainly want to avoid that, Mike 
gut instinct, and again, I think I'll defer to Max in terms of sh- shedding more insight on this, is that, you know, philosophically, I don't think there is a substantial difference between Iserman and Holland in terms of roster construction slash amount of interference they're running with coaching and in terms of how they're going to dictate Blasio makes his uh, roster selection. So I don't, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot that changes from Blasio's perspective. Um, but I do think the number one key for me as an outsider looking in is how that organization is prepping for the influx of tracking data. And if, Iserman and Blaschel are going to be on the same page with how to use it and how to really digest it. Yeah, it's, that's a great point. The, the analytics question here, I think, is a big one um, in terms of what that looks like going forward. We didn't get a whole lot of light shed on that at the introductory press conference. I, I think the big value of this is that Jeff Blaschel in, in is, is, you know, obviously I'm not necessarily in those meetings or anything like that or having a ton of insight into how, how that looks between him and Holland right now. So from what I know about about him, is he, he's someone who likes being presented with with other people's opinions. He likes to be able to argue them. He doesn't always change his, but he but he he seems like the, the kind of guy who's willing to when presented with a better argument. And I think this introduces one more new mind, one more new voice into that equation, where maybe he doesn't change a lot, but maybe maybe he changes a little, or maybe he he hears an argument that he likes. For, for shifting little things around or, or how things should be utilized. I think you could see a little bit of a shift because, because he has already grown as a coach uh, in the NHL, just in terms of, of what he's learned. I think he'll continue to learn. And, uh, and now you have someone like Steve Eisenman in there in those conversations. These are people who, who are, who are going to be in close contact with one another. Um, so, so maybe you do see a little bit of, of philosophy shift from Jeff Blash. I don't know what that would be, but, but I think it's something that certainly could be an option. And the the benefit that Iserman has coming in here from being in Tampa Bay for nine years is Blashill has a, a clean slate with Iserman, both from a good and bad standpoint. So if, if Iserman loves what he sees over the first couple of years, he can stick with him long term. If he is really does not like the way the first year goes, there's no attachment, there's no loyalty there. And also, if Iserman kind of wants to pull a bit of rank, he can do a little bit of what Kyle Dufus did with Mike Babcock in Toronto last summer, where if he wants the team to get younger, but Babcock just insisted on playing Roman Polak top four minutes, he can always jettison him off to Dallas. That can solve some problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, admittedly, there was a lot of um, criticism of, from Blaschel coming from our direction, and, and I, I'll stand by that. I, I don't quite agree with uh, everything that he does. I think there's a lot of similarities to the questionable parts of what Mike Babcock brought um, to the Red Wings. But, you know, Max, you've been talking about, you've been telling us this for some time now, and, and I think we have to give you credit and Blashill credit where this guy has the respect of the team and, and the respect of, of professionals around the league, and, and he, he is a really smart hockey mind. And in all fairness, it, it's easy to lose this in the weeds, but in all fairness, he hasn't been given a lot to work with. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, this isn't something to kick and scream over. Um, I've maintained that the GM was the more important position in terms of getting a team on the right direction for a rebuild because a coach can't do that on his own. Um, I, I'm not sure how it, how people perceived that back in the day, but in today's NHL, a coach can't control the success of a team beyond, say, what Barry Trotz is doing the, with the Islanders. So having Blashell two years, even if you're someone like me where that, that's not your favorite 
pick for coach. Um, I don't think it quite affects it. And in any case, if you want to be a jerk about it, um, (laughs) it's a a better lottery pick. If he's bad, it's a better lottery pick, and they're they're not beholden to him. Um, Speaking of guys who have gotten a lot of criticism, this is obviously a very um, interesting exit for Ken Holland and a very emotional one. Um, He took a lot of heat. From us, especially, but he took a lot of heat over the past few years, and uh, there was a lot of very obvious emotion in that press conference uh, when he was announcing the decision and when he was talking about how Stevie was brought in. Um, where does this leave Ken Holland in the uh, the history books for the Red Wings, and, and what's next for him? Yeah, this is um, for Ken Holland. It's going to be fascinating to see how he's actually remembered because you know the guy stepped in in '98, basically handed a Stanley Cup you know, championship team. Um, and the, from that point on, he kind of had the luxury of operating without a salary cap in the first few years. Uh, like I'll never forget the 2001 off season where in the span of a week, he trades for Dominic Hoshik, signs Brett Hall and signs Luke Robitaille. And you're just like, yep, that's, that's normal. Um, but once the cap came into place, I think it was a lot more challenging. And I think a lot of his mistakes were maybe magnified in terms of just throwing money and term at certain players and kind of that loyalty to a fault aspect, I think really got challenged when you couldn't just trade someone away, buy someone out, spend more money to make it all right. And then now we're getting word that he's basically orchestrated his replacement coming in and stepping in. Um, I think it, it's going to be interesting to see how he's officially remembered. I think from my standpoint, the most important thing I would want everyone to hang on to is the wing, no matter what happens, but particularly if the wings are successful in the next three years, you have to remember the moves that Holland made this year and last year, Uh, particularly the trading of Tatar, the trading of Nyquist, the trading of Shahan, you know, the trading of Spruill, trading Brendan Smith. He did a lot to clear granted it was his own mistakes but he did a lot to clear the way for someone to step in and have less roster turnover to deal with um so i think that's important to remember when you're remembering him in the history books yeah and i think i think it even can start before he was officially you know take over as gm i think you know he was still involved in in the scouting department even before he was the gm i think i think you still have to give him some some hand or some credit in, in having a hand in building that that team to begin with that he eventually took over. You know, I, I don't know, I don't know if I love telling people like like how how to feel about things, but I think the one thing I I do feel pretty comfortable saying is I I don't think that when when all is said and done five years ago looking back, I'd be surprised if even if even if Red Wings fans still look back and they they just got out from underneath the applicator contract and they're still a little annoyed at that and. They can pick and choose little things here and there. I'd be stunned if Red Wings fans didn't, at the end of the day, say that they could at least respect what what Ken Holland was was trying to do most of the time. I, I think obviously we can we can pick through the the three or four really glaring mis, you know mistakes there that, that are that are just plain as day now. But with five years of hindsight, especially like Prashant said, if they're able to have success with some of the rebuilding moves that he's done once it became perhaps painfully obvious what needed to be done. He did it. And I think, I think that people will ultimately respect that. Um, I know Brad's on the, on the build a statue train, you know, whatever that looks like to people, I I think ultimately Ken Holland's going to have a positive legacy in Detroit. 
Max, a couple things here. I'm going to jump in ahead of Brad. First of all, all we do on this podcast is tell people how to feel. So I don't know who you think you are coming in, <laughs> changing that pace. Um, I, I'll give you my short answer before Brad's here is uh, I admittedly it was a huge critic of Holland's. Um, Brad was kind of the temper to that who who kind of tried to see the force of the trees. But I had a lot of criticisms about Holland. Um, but everything that both of you just said was hit the nail right on the head. Um, it was difficult. The job he was given was difficult. And this is a GM that's moved through several or a few different eras of hockey. Now the, the game has changed, you know, umpteen times and, and he's kept up and had built a successful franchise all up until the last, you know, half decade or, or, or a little bit more. But when I said build a statue, I, I, I meant it like he'll go down as a builder of the game. He'll go down in the hall of fame and, and as one of the greatest GMs of one of the most successful iterations of a sports franchise that, that sports has seen. So when it comes to legacies and remembering people and, and analyzing people who are at the top of their profession, I always find it important to remember that I am nobody. I'm an idiot sitting in a basement with a strange man staring at toys on a shelf. (laughs) I, look to the other to his peers i look to what type of reputation does ken holland hold around the league and universally every other gm you ever talk to lists ken holland as one of the best gms the nhl has seen so as much as i have my reasons for liking him and disliking him and agreeing and disagreeing with stuff he's done he's got the reputation he does around the league for a reason and that's good enough for me and I really do think, I think that's how people are going to remember it. Like, like you always have these at the ends of people's careers where there's, there's the flare ups, but eventually everyone gets the, gets the retrospective goggles and they can, they can see the bigger picture. They can see that, that this was the ending of something and people don't always need the ending to be, to be as, as neat and tied with a bow to, to see what, you know, what was ultimately the whole picture. I, I have a hard time thinking that any, any ill will toward Ken Holland is going to last more than a week past the day the Justin Applicator contract ends. <laughs> <laughs> Which is marked in all of our calendars. Uh, we have a couple of questions from some listeners here. We're going to start with Connor Jager. Um, he talked a little bit about the Griffins game uh, and the bloodbath about that, but his question to us is, uh, who do we think has the biggest bust potential in this draft? So in the top 10, who do we think is has the biggest potential to be a complete dud? Oh, that's tough. To me, it seems like Pod Colson maybe has this very boom or bust kind of nature attached to him. I think there's a lot less known about him from an analytical perspective, if you will, just because the KHL doesn't have um, in their uh, junior leagues, like they don't have any sort of data available for people to take a little a, a deeper look into him. Um, and then I think from the bus perspective, it's not necessarily with his skill level. Uh, to me, it's more just is he coming over or not, and could a team potentially burn a high pick on a guy who may not come over for a handful of years and get strung along that way? And so I think maybe boom bust is the wrong word, but risk reward is maybe the better way to go about it. When it comes to drafting him, can I say Broberg, or is everyone already settled? Uh, I mean, he wasn't even in my list. Like he's way down there. Yeah, he's fallen pretty far. I don't know. I, I, it's so hard. If, if if there was a guy who had bus written all over him, I think that would be there would be reason to say don't take him anywhere near the top ten. I 
I don't know that I see someone that I would be willing to say has his big bust potential. I mean, range of outcomes. I don't know. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. So I, the cynic in me could sit here and, and give a reason why all 10 of the top prospects could bust. Um, Pod Coles and I'm not sold on his hockey IQ. Turcotte's had injury, a lot of injury concerns. Zegris and Doc have a problem with the pace of play. Dylan Cousins' hockey IQ. There's, there's lots of um, variables in this draft. That's why it's a crapshoot. If I, if I had to pick one guy who's in almost everybody's top 10, but I look at, at their biggest flaw and it's, and it's my biggest concern. <laughs> Sorry, Max, I'd, I'd have to go with Kirby doc just because the, the pace at which he plays in junior concerns me that when he gets to a much faster and stronger league, I could see him struggling mightily to keep up. Not that I, I think that's going to happen. I still think he'll be a good NHL or either way, but if I had to pick one guy in the top 10, that would be the one. Uh, someone that you brought up on Sunday, actually, Max, uh, was Dylan Cousins. And, and before we were recording, we were chatting about that. And uh, it was a really good point. And, and I think it holds that Dylan Cousins has the potential to be a guy who's shown some production and shown some dominance in junior play, maybe just because of his size. Uh, he doesn't quite stand out or he's not exceptional in, in one area of the game. And that doesn't mean he's not a well-rounded player. It could turn out that he's a great overall player, but you know, he doesn't have that goal scoring touch. He's not a playmaking wizard. He doesn't seem to just kind of jump off the page or off the screen at you. And so like you guys have both mentioned, it's impossible to look at any of these guys and say, yeah, that's not going to be a good hockey player. That's there's no way they'd be ranked that high if that was the case. But if you had to assign it to one of them, cousins would actually be uh, an outside shot for me. Um, our next question, and, and I'm sure you guys have seen them all over Twitter, is from Rowan, all the way in Australia. He says, good day all, Max and Prashanth. I really enjoy your content, so thank you. Um, and then he has a question about Prashanth, your thoughts on the Red Wings taking on a contract. How do you view the Kadri situation? Is is this something the Red Wings should even consider? Three more years at four and a half mil, so fits, uh, longer than fits the model, but he's far from a bad contract. The flip side is he costs the team something instead of something coming with him. And would the Leafs do better elsewhere in terms of a return? Yeah, I think the the second point you brought up about him costing the team something versus, you know, the Wings being able to tag another asset onto him. I think that's the key deal breaker for me. Is Kadri a good player? Absolutely. Uh, would he step in and instantly be Detroit's two seat? Yes, absolutely. Is four and a half million a bad deal? Nope. But at the same time, I'm not really willing to pay any sort of price or penalty um, to get a player that's not necessarily elite um, and one that will be aging out of his prime. He's already 28, I think, or 29 years old now. So he's not a guy that is part of the long-term future. So to me, he's just taking up extra cap dollars at this moment, even though it's not all that much. I'd do it all day if, if I could do it for, a, you know, maybe a second this year and, and the San Jose pick that's a conditional for next year. Um, I don't know if Toronto does that, but but I think if you, if you can get it for two seconds, I think he makes a ton of sense because even though he is, he's not maybe the guy who's in the perfect age window, he definitely gets you over a bridge. He, he gets you into a position where, you know, maybe the only reason I wouldn't is if they're like genuinely very conscious of getting into that top like six or seven of next year's draft. And I, I, I don't know if they're going to get there anyway. 
Like, I, I think that I think Kadri makes a ton of sense for anything less than a first round pick. Yeah, for me, cost is everything. I like Kadri as a player. I like his skill set. He's not too far removed from being a consistent thirty goal scorer. Um, his age does concern me a little bit, but. I, I tend to err on the side of as much as I like him as a player, despite the attitude issues, he would have to come at a bargain for me to want to take that spot away from, let's say, the Red Wings draft to center this year or Joe Valeno in another year, or they just keep Athanasiu at center, whatever it might be. It, it would have to come at a bargain, and I just don't see Kyle Dubas doing that. In my mind, if you're giving up an asset for a player that can help your team now, why not go for a Jacob Truba who's 25, turning 26, and, and fills in a bigger hole necessarily for Detroit at defense? Yeah, I mean, Truba's always been tied to the wings just because he's a Michigan native, and, and he's certainly a great uh, defenseman. Although, you know, interestingly, I, I, I believe he's stalled, at least from the perspective of you know, his overall impact on the ice and his scoring production compared to like when the trade rumors first ha- happened uh, two or three years back. Uh, I don't view him through the same lens that I once did just because I don't think he's gotten substantially better. And if you look at him, while we have a much smaller sample size for Ronick, Ronick actually analytically appears very similar to uh, Truba in terms of the on ice impact. Is that a bad thing to have two of those guys? No. But again, it comes down to the cost that you pay to get a guy like that. It's probably a hefty price. And if you don't think he's going to make substantial improvements from where he's at and you've got a guy in your system that's already very similar, I may be less inclined to make that deal. Yeah, I think Michael Blake McCurdy's site, which is phenomenal, and I'm a subscriber of, and everyone else should be too. He's got that awesome feature where it does the isolated impact, and it shows you like those heat maps all over the offensive and defensive zone of where shots are coming from relative to league average. I don't have it in front of me, so I might be a little off on this. I want to say that Truba is exactly league average in both zones. Philip. Peronic is better than league average in the defensive zone, and I think most people would agree that he projects to be better than average in the offense. Like I think Philip Peronic is going to be a better player than what Jacob Truba is right right this moment. I know Truba had like a phenomenal start to his career. I think there's a real chance that Philip Peronic, in within two years, is a better player than Jacob Truba is. Um, and and again, I think if, if you're talking about paying Jacob Truba seven million dollars. Um, I don't know. I don't want to pay that price if I'm, if I'm Detroit. Um, but you know, again, it all comes down to to what it's going to cost. Like if if you can get Truba as a free agent, like I don't know that that's a bad thing to have two guys who who can play like that. But but Truba might be on the downside. Um, you never know. I mean, maybe he can always have a bounce back year next year or something. But but uh, I'm I'm kind of in the camp where where Truba might be past the point where Detroit should go all in for him. As weird as that is, that he's 25. <laughs> I'm still at the point. The my point with Kadri would go to Truba as well. They're both really good players who would fill roles. Um, but again, in a team, when a team needs elite level assets, I don't see it being worth trading for these players. I take take your home run swings in free agency, and other than that, take your home run swings in the draft and and let it settle. Uh, as much as I. Do like Truba as much as I do like Hadri. I just I can't see giving up future assets for them at this point. 
There's uh, there's small pauses as we're talking because Brad and I also silently have the Carolina Washington overtime uh, on in front of us, and we kind of gasp every time there's a chance. Uh, so with that, we'll ask one there's more question. Oh yeah, it's uh, ten minutes left. Uh, Carolina has actually been buzzing lately. Yeah, I can't believe Carolina hasn't ended this yet. So Washington's definitely going to win at some point. Wow. Yeah. Uh, last question for you guys: um, favorite hockey jersey that you own, and one that you wish you could own. Ooh, I think my favorite one that I own is my uh, Anthony Mantha Centennial Classic. Uh, I just think that was one of the sharpest jerseys the Wings have trotted out. Um, in recent memory with the silver piping along the arms and everything. I thought that was really well done. I think a Jersey that I I wish I had is I currently don't have really any of the uh, older generation of players. Like um, I've got a Nick Lindstrom Western conference, all stars from some year. I don't remember. And then I've got an autograph Nick Lindstrom one, but outside of that, I don't have anything from Eisenman or Shanahan Fedorov, anything like that. So That'd kind of be where I'd want to go is get one of those old CCM jerseys um, for Stevie maybe and uh, get that framed and hung up. I don't own a single hockey jersey other than the ones I play in. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Maybe like a, I don't, I honestly have no idea what I would even, I haven't had a hockey jersey that I wore for like fun since I was in middle school. I don't, I just don't own any. Uh, maybe a Team USA one. I don't know. <laughs> the uh, we we've answered this a few times on the show, but I desperately want a Nick Lidstrom or like Wrigley Field Winter Classic jersey. I think that's the one that I am kicking myself for not getting. Um, and also incredibly rare and a ton of fakes out out there. So I've been burned once. So <laughs> one day, uh, Max Prashanth. It is near eleven thirty, if not at eleven thirty p.m. Uh, as we're recording. Thank you guys so much for joining us this late. Um, I was honestly expecting the Carolina game to be over, so uh, we'll let you guys go to finish the game. Uh, this roundtable, we had a blast, and um, let's do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This was really fun. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed that roundtable. That's something we definitely want to uh, do more of in the future, so let us know if you liked uh, the way that went. It was amazing. All the takes were fantastic and or awful. And somehow I'm back at the table. <laughs> <laughs> the continuity it makes no sense is it possible to break the fourth wall on a podcast I think we, we, just did. we just did uh i really like the point prashanth made about the point that you made and then the the analysis that followed yeah i really thought max boltman wrapping all of eminem's discography was a bizarre <laughs> portion of the show that we weren't expecting but kind of worked with the theme of what we were doing and i have no idea how Prashanth managed to have hot wings delivered to us at the exact moment the interview started, but mm. all the way from Carolina. That was fantastic. Uh, for context, we are recording the uh, roundtable after. Yeah. We are done recording overtime, <laughs> in case you haven't figured that out. Uh, we're going to get to overtime. Uh, we're going to save a couple of these questions. Well, we have saved, based on how you're going to be listening to this. Um, this is, uh, in the words of Jeff Merrick, a little bit of a Frankenstein podcast. Uh, we saved some of your questions, but we're going to get to overtime, and we'll ask the remaining ones. So uh, Joseph Fournier says, uh, thanks again for gracing us with your presence. Uh, given the way Eisman has shaped the lightning, what do you see in terms of futures of the glut of defensive specialist forwards in the wing system? I love this question. 
Guys like Glenn Denning and De La Rose Turgeon are commodities on playoff teams, but how do you think Eisenman sees them in his rebuilding vision of the Red Wings? So in the short term, nothing's going to change because he doesn't have options. Um, but as I talked about last episode, Steve Eisenman is a GM who has very clearly put an emphasis on skill. The guys who play on his fourth line play that grit grinder shutdown role. But these are guys who were transplanted from more offensive roles from where they came from, a la Cedric Paquette and Ryan Callahan. So I expect over time the same thing to happen there, where Detroit will just get a glut of skill players and then shoehorn whoever needs to be shoehorned into that role. Um, is this something that will likely be put on hold until after the draft? Also, how much do you buy the talk of us poaching some of Tampa Bay staff? The, I think it's very real, and I think Eisenman will try to do his best to – you never pass up an opportunity to bring in talent, and Eisenman, I think that's his GM style both in – It would per- be tough to get me out of living in Florida. Oh, yeah. To go live in Detroit. No uh, offense to Detroit, but living in Florida would be all right. The only way I see it yep. working for Al Murray or Pat Verbeek – are if their loyalties to Eisman supersede everything else. And there have been hints at to that being the case. There is rumored to be an out clause for Al Murray, and Pat Verbeek's contract is also up, I believe. And so they, they could follow him. But like Eisman said in his presser, you have to make it worth it. And living in an income tax-free state like Florida, Ooh, and yeah. that's a beautiful place to live. To go up to Michigan, like you, you these have to be hockey moves these have to be passion moves from these people let's just hope they're not avid golfers because if they are they're not coming uh, doesn't michigan have some good courses florida oh has florida all, has way better has yeah, all, michigan has good courses but from what i understand the pro golfers have a very big feud between them all the u.s players play at one course and all the europeans play at another and there's like always battles between the two I love it. Yeah, it must suck being super wealthy. I'm here for the West Side. Having clubhouse battles. Yeah. I'm here for the West Side story of Florida golfers. Honestly, I'd watch a movie. Yeah, that's what every movie. That was, I think, wasn't that the plot to La La Land? I don't know. Yeah. That was a plot to La La Land. Yes. (laughs) I accidentally watched Moonlight instead. (laughs) That's a hysterical joke. You don't get it. I haven't seen either movie, so I do not. You don't watch the Oscars either. I kind of pay attention. Oh, that was the one that got announced wrong. Yeah. yeah. Got yeah there we go. There we go. Uh, Brad Spencer says, hi, guys. I know there's been a quite a bit of discussion uh, regarding Eisman making additional moves to shake up the management staff. What would the timeline look for Steve to make these potential moves? Is this something that will likely be put on hold until after the draft? Didn't you say that? Already? Oh, I read the, the end part of the wrong comment, but that's okay. Um, it, so at the timeline of what we just talked about was... He'll try to get as much done before the draft as possible, but these things you can't really put a timeline on. Yeah, you can't take Al Murray out of Tampa Bay shortly before the draft. You can't, a team is not going to let their head of amateur scouting go two months out of the amateur draft. Can if he offers him assistant GM position, if that's what he wants. Yeah, no, you can you can give him a promotion, but do you think Tampa is going to give them permission to do that before the draft? I don't think they have to ask for permission if they're offering a promotion. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Sh- that would be interesting. Oh, no, I, I'm wrong, but if Al Murray has this out clause, it might not matter. But that out clause probably doesn't kick in until July 1. The out clause is rumored to be tied to Eisenman leaving. Interesting. Well, that's a weird one. And that's it, a very weird one. And that it's nothing confirmed. It's just kind of speculated. I know Joe Smith put that out there, like who's the Tampa Bay beat writer for The Athletic. Yeah. And he knows his stuff. Um Also, if it's, you, it's really unpredictable, though. And if you want to talk about professional courtesy, Tampa... 
letting Detroit talk to Eisman in March. Yeah, Detroit owe them one. Detroit should probably let their head of amateur scouting finish out the draft before poaching him if he is coming. Yeah. So timeline, he'll want these things done before puck drop in October. That's the timeline you can work with. Yeah. As, the sooner the better, but that's the realistic time frame Eisman's going to want to work And with. we're talking about specifically with the head of amateur scouting here, but with a guy like Pat Verbeek, that would make more sense for him to come over and whenever. I doubt Eisman has distrust in the Red Wings scouting department as is. No, yeah. Like So I'm sure him coming in, he see he, he definitely knows what they've already been up to. Um and he trusts in the in those employees and and what they've been doing so far. So it's not like he's coming into this tire fire where there's no scouting capabilities and it's like an absolute disaster. Like the Red Wings have quite an established system and there's yeah. a lot of trust in it. So I don't think he's coming in and and worrying, trying to get people in before July 1. No. Tyler Clore says, do you guys think uh, Athanasi or Amantha could fetch a top 10 first round pick? No. Like by themselves? Yeah. No. And outside of top seven, I probably wouldn't trade one of them for. I would trade. (laughs) Okay. Here, ask yourself this. Athanasi for Dylan Cousins. Do you do it? I don't. Would a team like Colorado want to prove an NHL for a team rather or for the team rather than a prospect that is a year or two out since they are winning playoff series right now? That's actually a great question. Colorado would have a lot of value for a guy like Athanasiu. Oh. Someone, a winger who can drive the play on their second line or even maybe play center, although I don't think Athanasiu's destined spot is center. Like they would have a lot of value for that kind of guy. I- I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. Because if you look at the way Colorado is built currently, almost all of their key players are still young. Rantanen's got a lot of good le- hockey left in him. Their captain, Gabriel Landeskog, is only, what, like 24? Kale McCarr just stepped in and yeah. disgusting. Kale McCarr, good. and he's amazing. Ah, Man, if they can get some more good young talent in there, they, Colorado's in a position to build up powerhouse for the better part of a decade so if they start rushing things now that's not the right approach in my mind yeah they might go a couple rounds further in the next couple uh playoffs but man i would rather go the tampa route and just build a team that's going to be set forever because they've got nathan mckinnon right now holds the crown of the best contract in the nhl yeah whoever they get at fourth in two years when this team is very much contending They'll be ready to play in any role that they need them to play on that team. Like, I think they take Doc. They're fine. They had their speedy guys. Oh, I, I think they're so. fine taking NHL ready Doc. But man, if they take Bowen Byram, yeah, he's probably only a year away. Like, are you kidding me? They could get real good real fast. Uh, Joe Craig, Joseph Craig says, "Who in the wings do you think the Stevie values on the current roster?" I'm ready to see the future because since you all started the pod, the team has not been a good team. They were an all right team descending to a bad team. Uh, the guys that Steve Eisman named in his presser. Those were the guys. If you weren't that, named at that press conference, you should probably be concerned. <laughs> I, I think he let oh, Chalosky poor slip. Dennis Chalosky. Yeah, he it, probably forgot about him. Um, but those guys that he named plus Chalosky are who he values. And you notice how he didn't name Abdulkader or Helm or Glenn Denny. What? Why not, Ryan? Uh, second question: Which rebuilding team will get to the conference finals first? Detroit, Edmonton, Florida, Buffalo, or the Rangers? Florida. Rangers. Rangers. Florida's getting Panarin and Bobrovsky this that, summer. That would change my answer. Yeah. That would change my answer. But right now, New York's also a team that's very hot to trot on Panarin. And I, they're getting Capo Caco, and their system already is pretty good. So 
Yeah. Jeffrey Carlton says, Steve Eisenman is the Red Wings GM. Steve Eisenman is the Red Wings GM. Steve Eisenman is the Red Wings GM. God, that feels good. All is right in the world, fellas, unless you're Vegas. Yikes. Can't wait for the draft and what is to come this summer. Probably more of a minor point, but what do you think happens with Drapes? As far as I can tell, seems like he's doing a good job in the org, but I wonder how Stevie values him. Anyways, thank you for the fantastic content and being all around great guys with great insight on our beloved Red Wings. Here's to the Iser plan. Uh, Drapes is very well liked within the organization. He's been kind of before Stevie came in was the one of the him and Horkoff were the biggest pushers of like a progressive contemporary way of evaluating talent kind of breaking away from the old school model like wants to use new technologies that kind of thing and has an excellent excellent relationship with steve eisenman i only see his influence and his abilities being uh enhanced with eisenman coming in and i think we're gonna I, you're gonna see steve or draper's career kind of launch with i him. don't know this for a fact but it feels like chris draper is very content with where he is in his position and where he is in his life he gets to coach his kids team he gets to be involved in his family life while he still gets to you know get paid for his his lifetime passion and one of now probably his best friends is coming back into the organization so i would think he's content doing what he's doing now if there's some something else he'd rather do in the uh in the organization steve eiserman might be the key to allow him to do that so I think this is only good things for Chris Draper. Those were two very insightful answers, so I'm just going to say he's getting fired. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> the most logical most logical answer. We we can't all agree. Uh, Mitch Rake says, who's going to be the first player shipped out under the Eisman regime? Hashtag Brad Brigade. Well, because he's a fool for you. You can answer this one, Brad. One of Erickson or Daly. Uh, Adam Cesar says, uh, ooh, is a new patron. So welcome to the hashtag dub dub family. I'm trying a new one there. Uh, so he says, so Stevie Wise now GM. He's getting to work. He's a big fan of drafting Russian. Rumors say Stevie might bring Fedorov back in some sort of role with the organization. And to top it all off, a lot of speculation is surrounding Pod Colson and his KHL contract being worrisome for instant gratification in the NHL. If stock for Turcotte rises, maybe goes third to Chicago, Byron goes fourth, and Cole Caulfield lights it up at under 18s and the Kings pick him up fifth. Do we get ourselves another Zadina situation? Do you think Z- uh, Stevie would go best player available? Personally, I'm a fan of Zegris. I'm more familiar with his playmaking ability. I'd be happy with that. But Pod Colson, I'm not sure. Love the podcast, by the way. I crave Red Wings knowledge, and you guys are the IV to the artery I need. I love that. Thank you so much, uh, Adam. Um, I mean, yeah, if Pod Colson falls to six, that would very much be in play. And I'd be surprised if they didn't pick him, um, unless like Byram also fell by some chance. This, this U.S. national development team play right now is really throwing a lot of wrenches into everybody's minds. Cole Caulfield's and going top ten, maybe top five. The the crazy thing is the U.S. NTDP might have five players drafted in the top ten. No team or program has ever had four drafted in the top ten. No, they're actually going to draft. New York's going to draft Capo Caco as an American. That's how good they're playing. <laughs> You could, uh, I I could see a, a scenario where Pod Coles and Falls just based on how well the US NDP NDTP has been playing. And TDP. And TDP, yeah. Yeah, but my counterpoint is, do you know what other team also isn't afraid of Russians? Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. They, so. they would love to replace Panarin for free. 
Yeah. Love that. Uh, Advanced Water says, I grew up in the South and I didn't think I had any stereotypical Southern tendencies until I moved to California. Now, a few times a year, I ask for something or say a phrase only to get blank stares. But seriously, who's never heard of grits? Uh, anyways, what are some cultural things you grew up saying or doing and didn't realize were regional until you got older? Uh, also, Evan, if you're there, Hello. I, I just finished Band of Brothers. Incredible show. I'm about to start the Pacific. If you've seen it, how would you compare the shows? I'm shaking my head now. He hasn't seen it. Um, regional. No, things? I have seen it. Oh, the yeah. Pacific is an absolute bastardization of the of the of Band of Brothers. Oh. I watched it and I've never watched it again. I've watched Band of Brothers eight or nine times. So I'm not going to necessarily say words. I'm saying, what the hell is a restroom? It's a washroom or a bathroom, you American heathens. Uh, also calling it <laughs> soda. I say, yeah, we say pop up here, but I think yeah. people from Michigan say pop. Yeah, that one's relatively common in a good chunk of the U.S. Yeah, there's a lot. The people aren't kidding when they say like the uh, like how Canadians drag their O's like a boot, like hockey. But like, I don't I don't I don't get it when I say like about I say about, but like it's the soul. Uh, you know, like that kind of stuff. That's when it really comes through. What was the so one we get really like really like you said with over enunciating the O's. I we don't all do that. I say process, not process. I flip flop. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I maybe I flip flop and don't realize it. But when I think about the word, it's process, product. Z and Z. I don't know. I can't remember which one's you know North American, which one's British. Everyone in math always said Z. No one said it's Zed. Mm. Mm. All the pleases and thank yous up here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris Roberts says, hey, guys, just curious uh, who you guys are more high on. Doc, Zegris, Turcotte, Byram, or Cousins? I think oh, I'm I every damn right now I'm flip-flopping back and forth between Byram and Turcotte. That's essentially where I'm at as well. I, I actually. So I watched a U18 game on the weekend and I, I came away very unimpressed with Dylan Cousins after that game. So with all the talk that we've had about Turcotte and Zegers and Caulfield, I felt like I was being a little unfair and probably a little had a lot of recency bias towards them. And I felt like I was being unfairly critical of Doc and Cousins. So I went back and watched a lot uh, on what day was it? Whatever day I was off and had some time. I watched a lot of footage on Cousins and Doc and I came away even less impressed than I was going into it. I think so. I don't even know if I have those guys as top 10 picks at this point. I think I do still, but I think I have every one of the USMTTB guys, like the big five, ahead of both of them at this point. Uh, Chris continues to say, I know the wings are in need of a playmaker, but if Byram is there, do you still uh, is still there? Do you think they would go for the need on defense? PS is pronounced Robert. Oh, sorry. Chris Robert. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. I don't have a read on, on where the organization is on these guys. I honestly think if you had to pick one, they're probably the highest on Doc. Ugh. But I don't think Doc will be there. Uh, Chris, I, I hope he's not because I don't want to have another Rasmussen situation where the team overvalues certain traits that aren't as important in the league anymore. Chris Cannell says, uh, hi, Max and Prashant. Uh, I was wondering why we'll Blash would get an extension if Kenny knew uh, that Steve U was coming. Uh, we did talk about uh, Blash, or we will have did talk about Blash. We will have done Depends did it. Depends what state you live in. Yeah, uh, we, we will have done did it. <laughs> usually when a new G GM is hired, they get their own coach in there. And from what we know, Kenny knew that Steve was coming back three months ago. Thanks, guys, for all, all your hard work could have consulted stevie and we just didn't know uh blasio is well respected and liked across the league and i don't think that the popular fan opinion quite sits the same within 
administrations across the NHL. I think it's completely the opposite. I like. I mean, like the fans' oh, opinion, like, yeah, yeah, compared exactly. to what actual people in hockey think. Yeah, for sure. Like it, it, Blashill's liked everywhere, um, and it sounds like players love playing for him. So he has his strong points. Like he's a players' coach. He he takes more of a teacher's approach versus a disciplinarian. He. He play. He tries to implement a system that's very fast and upbeat, which are all good things. So I, I could see, I could see where they're coming from. It's just the flaw. His flaws as a coach are so fatal. Here's the thing. I don't. I wouldn't have made the hire myself. But here's the silver lining. Steve Eisman was not the GM or not associated for the Red Wings for years now, over half a decade. He needs time to come in, reestablish what's what, assess what he has, to have a coach. And to keep some familiarity for the team that is in a very crucial state of its development, that there is a benefit to that. And if in a year, year and a half, two years, he decides he wants to move another direction, that'll be fine. Because you know what's going to happen between now and then? Not a lot of success for the Red Wings. And that's to be expected as they're rebuilding. And if there is a lot of surprising success next year for the Red Wings, then you don't get rid of Blashill. Even I'd say that. If, If this team turns it around and whatever he does ends up working, well, if the team's winning... You don't change it. So there's higher priority items to work on 100%. before. Yeah. And once again, Blashill doesn't count against the cap. So no. who cares? With that, we are going to wrap up uh, this midweek episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. I'd like to thank uh, all of our name level, all of our patrons, especially our name level sponsors, Sky Carcass, Luke, Arjun Shanker, Clayton Van Dyken, Mike Reed, Langabeer, Kalen Wood, Charlie Elkins, Rob Thiel, Stan Olson, Ryan Alant, uh, Ryan Lewis, Dan Bell, and Hannah Lee. Thank you all so much. Guys, listen to the outro. That wingedwheelpodcast.com that she mentions, it's live. Check it out. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.